0: Would you take your Bible and find the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 this morning? Matthew chapter 1. While you're finding that, let me give a word of thanks and appreciation to all of those that participated in the performance last evening for Christmas Lights. It was a fantastic performance. It was great to gather together as a community here on campus to uh, see the Christmas Lights come on. Nice change of pace for us. So thank you all for those of you who participated in it. And uh, helping us celebrate the kickoff of Christmas here on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. And with that, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Christmas story, but in a different way. We're going to do a little bit of a treasure hunt. I don't know if you've ever heard of this uh, hobby that's called geocaching. Uh, Geocaching is this real world outdoor treasure hunting uh, game that is built around GPS. You can go to specific websites, and they'll give you uh, coordinates that you can plug into your GPS. And they will navigate you to that location, and in that location, you will be searching for a hidden container, a, a hidden cache that has treasures and trinkets and those type of things in it. And it's, it's becoming a bigger deal across the country as folks are going to these places and finding uh, sometimes uh, foreign currency of great value, various things, uh, that, uh, little pieces of jewelry and such it is a practice that people are enjoying. But the most unusual thing about it is they, they navigate you to a commonplace, ordinary pedestrian area. So hidden in the location uh, where people are just constantly passing by is a treasure that no one knows about until they're prompted to begin the search using the GPS. I say all that to say this, I want to do a little geocaching in the genealogies of Christ this morning. I don't know about you, but when I read the genealogies, particularly in the Old Testament, it is a quick skim, if not a skip, if I'm in my daily Bible reading plan. Some of the names are hard to read. The history is unknown. It's hard to understand all of those names. But I have learned this, and it is true. It is a principle of Scripture that all Scripture is given by inspiration. there's a purpose for those particular names that are listed there, particularly when we look in Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy that is presenting the, the Lord's lineage in Matthew 1 is really a clear representation of Christianity, why Christ came. So today I want to talk to you about three hidden blessings from heavenly begats. These begats that we often pass over, we find some very simple biblical truths in as we look at the stories behind the names. Here's the first blessing. I refer to it as the blessing of welcoming grace. When he opened the door of the New Testament, Matthew greets us by pointing out to us that it is grace that will gather and greet you and carry you, guide you through the rest of the study of the New Testament. The names that are listed in the lineage of Christ are there only by the grace of God. I want you to notice some people who are listed in this, this, this lineage that are welcomed in grace but would have normally been excluded. There are those that would be excluded by genetics. The Bible tells us that in verses, uh, uh, verses 3 and 5, there are two that are mentioned that are not, or actually three, that are not even Jewish. They weren't of the lineage of the Jews. Their ethnicity was outside that of the chosen people. There were Canaanites, a Moabitess. They were present in the lineage of Christ. But aren't you grateful that Paul told us in Romans chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and here's the blessed part for us, also to the Greek. To those that are outside the chosen family, the, the chosen Jewish race. The gospel, the grace of God is extended beyond to the Gentiles. But when you, when you look at these individuals who are listed here, they were, they were excluded because they were considered pagan. But God in His grace reached out to those. And by and large, as we gather here this morning, the majority of us, if we were to look at our, our lineage, we were to look at the genetic makeup of who we are, we would be of that Gentile persuasion and it's by the grace of God that we are part of the family of God. So the very first thing that we find is that uh, those that would have been excluded by genetics, by the ethnicity, they are welcomed into the family. But then there's a second group that's excluded that's listed here. Those that would normally be excluded but welcomed by the grace of God would be that of gender. When you look in verses 3, 5, and 6, you're going to find four individuals that are either recorded or referenced. And each of them were female. Tamar is the story of a daughter-in-law of Judah recorded in Genesis chapter 38. Rahab, we know the story from Joshua chapter 2. Ruth, the Moabitess widow, the whole book of Ruth is dedicated to her. And then there's the reference to Bathsheba in verse number 6. She's unnamed, but she's referred to as the wife, the former wife of Uriah. It's significant that you see these names of the females listed in this, this genealogy of Grace. Because as you look at this compared to the Old Testament, there is, as far as I can find, only one genealogy in the Old Testament that even makes a reference to a woman. The Old Testament was more of a patriarchal society, but Christ comes and he He allows in his lineage the, the names of these females to be mentioned. Some religions even still teach today that women are expendable, that women are second class. They require their, 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 their females to wear burkas from head to toe, never to see their face, barely to see their eyes. They believe that women should never be educated. They believe that a woman cannot be trusted. Her testimony cannot be accepted in a court of law. Some countries today, based upon a religious teaching, will not even allow women to drive. But I'm glad to say, when Jesus Christ came, at the front door of the New Testament, He broke down that barrier. And he said, I welcome those women. When you study the life of Christ, Jesus was always, always receiving and gracious to women. I challenge you to study the life of Christ. You will never find a time where Jesus belittles, demeans, or is harsh with any female he interacts with. And Jesus broke down the barrier. He broke down the genetic barrier. Galatians 3 verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's the genetics, and there is neither male nor female, there is gender, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Immediately, as you open the door of the New Testament, you are welcomed with grace those who have come in as Gentiles, those who would have been excluded because of their gender. But there's a third group that he welcomes as well. He welcomes those that would have been excluded by guilt. Everyone that is listed here and the generations leading up to the birth of Christ were guilty. The very first person listed in verse number two was Abraham. And Abraham was guilty of lying. And Abraham's son is listed, Isaac. Isaac followed in the deceitful footsteps of his father. And then when you see Jacob is mentioned. Jacob was a trickster. He was a charlatan. He tricked his brother and his father out of the birthright. And then there's Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Even when you read in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews, it's referred to as Ab- uh, Rahab the, the, the harlot. And then, and then Tamar pretended to be a harlot. And then probably the, the, the deepest of the sinners, if we, if we could put it that way, would be David. David committed adultery. And after committing adultery, he, uh, he, he tried to cover it up through the act of murder, murdering Uriah. But as we look in the Gospel of Matthew and we see this genealogy, David is mentioned in verse number 6 unashamedly, unapologetically. He is listed as part of the family of God. Hebrews 2 verse number 11 puts it this way, For both he that sanctifieth, that is Christ, and they who are sanctified, all are of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And the truth be told that as we look at our lives, there are things in our past that we are guilty of. And we think to ourselves, I am not worthy to be in the family of God. I am not worthy to have a relationship with God. But Jesus Christ came and opened the door of salvation with welcoming grace. And he says, no matter what you have done in your past, I am giving you grace that will give you forgiveness and redemption. Ernest Hemingway was a man who had many tortured I- I- I areas of his life, tortured in his soul, and it's reflected in some of the writings that he had, has left us. One Characterize the difficult relationships between fathers and sons. The the short story, The Capital of the World, is probably the best illustration of that. The story goes about a father and his teenage son who's named Paco. Paco was a common name during that time. The father's name is not known. And in the process of telling the story, uh, Paco gets frustrated with his dad. He's he's mad at his dad because of the rules in his home. And he decides he's going to run away from home and become a matador uh, matador in, in, in Madrid. Spain, the capital of Spain, thus the title, the capital of the world. And and the father is so upset that Paco has left home that he follows him, he chases him to, uh, to, to, to Madrid to search for him, to find his son, and he doesn't find him. He has no success in finding his son. Finally, he places an ad in the newspaper. And in the ad, it simply says this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Hotel Montana tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. You are welcome to come home. I love you, Dad. Hemingway writes as he concludes the story that the next day, in front of the Hotel Montana, there were 800 Pacos seeking forgiveness from their father. It's true But in this world, there are people that are so overwhelmed with guilt from their past, things that they have done, that they feel as if there is no hope, there is no possibility of relationship with God. There is no way that I can ever have a hope of eternity. But Jesus Christ came with welcoming grace and he says, I put aside through my grace the past that you have in your life. I grant you forgiveness and I give you redemption. Heaven's begats remind us of the blessing of God's welcoming grace. It reminds us of God's eternal plan. And in that, that plan is evidenced by God's schedule. Uh, that schedule is first mentioned. The gospel schedule is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The theologians refer to that as the proto-evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel. But here is the thing, from Adam all the way to Abraham, there is 20 generations. And Matthew begins the genealogy of Christ in verse number two at Abraham. So we're already 20 generations between the fall of man to Abraham. And then from Abraham, there are years, there are centuries, there is millennia that occurs before the Messiah comes. Why did it take so long for God in his schedule to allow the Messiah to come? I think Paul gives us the answer in Galatians four, verse number four. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. That phrase, fullness of time, is an interesting phrase. The word fullness would be used to, in, in secular documents in the Koine Greek to describe a, a ship that was overflowing with freight and merchandise, a vessel that was overflowing to the point that it was about to sink because it was so full. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And what Paul is saying is this, that when, when God's vessel of time was so full of grace and goodness, He could not help but allow Christ to come at the right time. It was the right time historically. It was the peace of Rome. There was peace relatively around the world so the gospel could be received. The, 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 the commercial uh, 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 transportation uh, ways, the the, 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 the ships, the, uh, the, the, the Via Maris, all of these various things allowed that the gospel could be disseminated at just the right time because of the Romans. It was the right time linguistically. Everyone generally spoke Greek, and as a result, they could hear the gospel in that means. It, it was the right time culturally. Culturally, the world was at its darkest place and needed light. And Jesus, as Isaiah 9 prophesied, came as a great light at just the right time. It was in God's schedule. But why did it take so long? Because God looks at time from the perspective of eternity. And if there's anything that we can take from this to apply to our lives in our little few years on this earth, that the things that we often think take forever, God is working in his time schedule. It's the blessing of his eternal plan. But not only is it evident in his schedule, it's also evident in his sovereignty. I want you to notice a few of the folks that are listed in this guilty group that is here. The very first one that is mentioned is Abraham and then Isaac, but then Isaac, from Isaac comes Jacob. Do you remember what Jacob did to be listed in the genealogy of our Savior? He really should not be. It technically should have been Esau. But Jacob lied to his father, and he cheated his brother Esau of his firstborn's right. And as a result, Jacob was fractured in his family. He had to run away from home. He was a fugitive from Esau. And while he was a fugitive, he met Leah. And it was through Leah that Judah was born as an ancestor of the Messiah. consider, Consider David. Verse number six, Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon, and Solomon was of that who had been the wife of Uriah. It it, it implicates, it it says very clearly that there was adultery that had occurred. We know the story. That because of the adulterous relationship that resulted in the murder of Uriah, David was then married to Bathsheba, and out of the marriage of Bathsheba came Solomon, who's listed in the family of our saviour. What Jacob did was wrong. Make no mistake about it. Lying to your father and cheating your brother. What David did was wrong. When you commit murder, when you, when you commit adultery, that is wrong. But here is the blessing that we find here. That God is greater than our sin. He he was greater than the sordidness and the sin of the people that were, were guilty in this. And he still was able to allow the Messiah to come. And this is key for all of us to understand in life. That sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows things in His permissive will to occur in our life, bad choices that we make, bad choices that set us back. But God is so sovereign, He is not limited, that He can use that to accomplish His ultimate will and His good. Consider the example of Joseph. Joseph, at the apex of his career as the prince of Egypt, he meets his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, these brothers who faked his death and sold him to slavery and lied to to his father. What does he say to them? He doesn't say, them, you dirty rotten scoundrels, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Here's what he says in Genesis 50 verse 20, but as for you, ye thought it evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Did you hear that phrase? He said, you thought it to be evil, but God meant it for good. That God allowed that Joseph would be placed in that pit and sold into slavery and to go through all of those things ultimately to allow him to reach the point that he would be able to save the people of his family. Genesis 50 verse 20 is the Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament. We know that verse. For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. What it is saying is this, that all things, the good, the bad, the sins that we have even committed, God will work them together for good in his glory because he is not limited in his sovereignty by your failure or sin. That's a big gap that reminds us of a blessing that God has an eternal plan beyond the scope of time. The blessing of the eternal plan, His schedule, His sovereignty, the blessing of God's welcoming grace. But notice also the blessing of spiritual liberty. When you look at Matthew chapter one, the very last part, portion of the of the genealogy is found in verse number seventeen. And this is so interesting when you read it. Look with me if you would at, at Matthew one verse seventeen. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David unto the carrying away of Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away of Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Verse. 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wife. Wise. All of the genealogy is setting us up for verse number 18. And verse number 17 is, is really the, the synopsis of the generations that led up to Christ's birth. Now, what does it mean when you look at verse 17? And it says 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations it's making reference to an old testament aspect concerning the number 7. It takes two sevens to make one 14. And what he's saying is this, there are two generations in those 14, those seven generations. The first generation of 7 is beginning at Abraham, the second of 7 generations is Jesse. And then that, that's the first 14. It then leads to that third generation of 7 or third set of seven generations, King David, and then from the fourth to the seventh generation the Babylonian exile. And then from the fifth it Goes to the exile's return, and then in the sixth, seven generations, it leads us to Joseph, the adopted father of Christ. Oh, you say, Well, that's fine. That's really good. Why are you telling me this? Is, this? is this a New Testament survey class? Do I need to have this known for a quiz in just a little bit? This is not something that we just memorized for rote memory. There is an application that comes from this. Because what Matthew is saying to us as he notes these three sets of 14. Uh, these six sets of seven he is saying that Jesus Christ is coming as the seventh seven okay Dr. Lanz that's great I still am not getting it what are you talking about here the number seven in the Old Testament is of great significance do you remember when God created the heavens and the earth the Bible says that on the on the seventh day he rested The reference of the Sabbath in the Old Testament is that one out of seven days is to be a day of rest. The Old Testament law said that the farmer, every seven years, would allow the land to lie fallow so that they could replenish with with nutrients. They could not plow it. They could not plant it. They could not use the land. The seventh year was a rest. But then you come to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, and there's something unique about the seventh seven. Every seven years, the land is to rest. But in the seventh seven, the 49th instance, it's to be the year of Jubilee and the rest is different. The Bible says in Leviticus 25, verse number 4 and 8, the seventh year shall the Sabbath rest in the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Neither shall thou sow thy field nor prune the vineyard. And thou shalt number the seven Sabbaths of the years unto thee, and seven times seven, and to the space of the seven Sabbaths of years, unto the 49 years. There is to be a rest that occurs. But then it goes beyond rest in the year of Jubilee. There is to be a restoration Leviticus 25, verse number 10, and ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto, unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession. Ye shall return unto every man his family. If a man had lost something, if, if he had a bankruptcy and he had lost a possession through the year of jubilee, the, what they lost in bankruptcy would be restored. So that your jubilee would be a time of rest. It would be a time of restoration. What you have lost would be restored to you. But it would also be a time of redemption. Leviticus 25, 47, and 48. If a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth uh, by him wax poor, and sell himself into the stranger, the sojourner by thee, or the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. What he's saying is this, that if you have a brother that is in poverty, that he is in slavery, you can buy him back back out of that slavery. So when Matthew is making reference to the seventh seven, that Jesus is the seventh seven in the generations of, uh, that are found in Matthew chapter one, what he's making reference to is this, that Jesus Christ comes and he issues a spirit of liberty. He brings in the time of jubilee. Even Jesus Christ knew this because on the day that he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, Nazareth it was his appointed day to read the scripture. And as he read the Scripture, he was reading from Isaiah this very portion of Scripture that said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach deliverance to to the captives, and the recovering of the sight to the blind. And here it is, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable, the favorable year of the Lord. Every aspect of the year of Jubilee is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come and be the one that would usher that in. When you see that phrase, that he would preach the acceptable year of the Lord, he is referring to the Jubilee that comes through Christ our Savior. And Jesus, the seventh seven, is the only person who can give us rest and restoration and redemption. A few years ago, I flew to Turkey for a visit to the seven churches of Asia, the churches of Revelation. At the time, i had taken a very cheap flight to go over there. I took a red-eye flight, flew out of New York at about 11.30, and I arrived into Munich, Germany for my, for my uh, uh, layover to, before I would arrive into Istanbul. I arrived into Munich Germany, a few hours, probably five, six hours later, and I had about a 10-hour layover in Munich. Now, if you've ever been to the Munich airport, let me tell you, it is a true Europe, European airport. It is very techno, very Europe model type thing. All uh, that is in there is generally very efficient, very clean, very contemporary, and particularly their seats, the, the places you sit in the in the lobbies, uh, they are efficient, they are ergonomic. That just means they are uncomfortable. Can I have an amen right there? And, and particularly when you look at an American body like I have on a European chair, it is just, it's a sight to behold. And I, I've had... Ten hours ahead of me before I could even get on a plane. And I've had a number of hours traveling overnight. I am tired. I am worn out. One of the things that they have in the Munich airport is, it's interesting, they're called nap cabins. These nap cabins are at each of the gates there for Lufthansa at least, the airline that I was flying on. And you can go and you can purchase a, a, a little, almost like a closet that has a bed in it. It's soundproof. Uh, it, it has air conditioning in it. It's, it's a place where you can go and rest in a brief period of time. That's why they call it a nap cabin. I went over and I investigated it. At the time, it was like 30 euro an hour. That would have translated to 50 dollars in our currency. And and I looked at that and said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm too cheap to pay $50 an hour to to rest in this nap cabin. So I go back over to these uncomfortable, efficient, ergonomic chairs there in the gate. There's no one at the gate because I am 10 hours early before my flight. There's another guy that comes along and uh, he goes to the nap cabin and he punches in uh, his credit card information and he pays it. And then his cell phone dings and he he looks at his cell phone and and it's like he's just frustrated for a moment. He looks at his cell phone and then he walks over to me and he says, sir, I think it was British. He had a British accent. He walked over to me and he said, sir, I just paid for this nap cabin for two hours. And I was just, just as soon as I put the information in, they texted me and they put me on another flight. My flight leaves in 30 minutes. and I, I can't use this nap cabin. I can't go in there and rest because I need to get to my other gate so I can fly out. And I can't get a refund back. Would you like to, to go ahead and, and use this nap cap? No, I said, no, I'm very comfortable here on these very skinny chairs. And I said, absolutely. You know what I did? Went in. He hadn't used it at all. It was still all set as if it would have been for the first person. I went in and I rested. You can turn on the the sound, you can play music, you can have white noise, pink noise, brown noise to drown out everything. It, It was a great moment of rest for two hours. And when I awakened, I was rested, I was restored. But here's the best part. I was redeemed because I didn't have to pay for it. Somebody else did. Now I use that little simple illustration to remind you that's what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus has given you rest And he has restored you from things that you have done in your past. And you didn't have to pay for it. He paid for it. As the brother who would be willing to redeem his kin, Jesus came and did what only he could do. He restored you through his redeeming grace. You know, that's what Jesus said he would do in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. He's speaking to all those people who are under the bondage of the law. But he says, I'm going to come and give you liberty. I'm going to give you spiritual liberty. All of you that labor, all of you that are worn out, all of you that are heavy laden, all of you that are weighed down. Some of you are saying right now, that sounds like me. I'm worn out and I'm weighed down. I got projects. I got tests. I got all these things I got to do in the next two weeks. Just remind yourself while you have to go through those things, Jesus came and met the greatest eternal need of your life. And he gives you rest a spiritual liberty that only he can give. So as you mind these begats, be reminded of God's welcoming grace. All of us are guilty, but he welcomes us into the family. Remind yourself of God's eternal plan. He is sovereign even over our past, and his schedule is perfect. And then be reminded of the spiritual liberty that he gives through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.